Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. I am joined by a very, very exciting guest to have on this show. I mean, I'm very excited because Surya Vanka is someone who um, uh, is a something of a hero um, and uh, a, a, an amazing model for uh, people who as an individual can have impact by helping large groups of people have impact. Before I get into what the hell I'm talking about, let me welcome you, Surya. How are you? I'm doing well, Lou. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you uh, join us. Uh, Surya is actually giving a talk at the upcoming Design at Scale conference. And uh, it's a topic that's is something that I'm so excited by. So the topic, the talk is titled Unleashing Swarm Creativity to Solve Enterprise Challenges. And, you know, the enterprise challenges are huge, but compared to what Surya has been pointing his swarm method at, they're kind of a bit Mickey Mouse. I mean, you know, Surya, we'll, we'll talk about some of the societal challenges that... Uh, that you've been unleashing creativity of the swarm upon. But uh, first, let me do a more formal intro. Surya, uh, you've had a, a career that's taken you uh, to consulting uh, at places like Amazon and REI and Microsoft. Well, of course, you were uh, a, a very senior design person, a director of user experience at Microsoft. You've uh, been a professor at uh, UIUC, a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study. Uh, you've been involved in putting together a lot of conferences. So um, you're just kind of a community guy in general. So I guess it makes sense. This uh, design swarm method that you've uh, pioneered, it, it kind of puts together a design and lots of people who aren't necessarily designers, if I understand it. That's um, absolutely true. I mean, you, you nailed it when you said a community guy. I'm such a believer in the power of the design community. So thank you for noting that. That is, you know, that's been a thread for me that's uh, run through a lot of the work that I've done in one way or the other, where whether it was as a teacher, uh, whether it was uh, building community in corporate at Microsoft, uh, building uh, community at uh, the Industrial Designers Society of America or IXDA. So community, I think, is uh, super important at this point. So the communities that you've worked with traditionally have been designers, but at, at some point, it seems like you've gotten beyond designers. I mean, I know a lot of the framing around the design swarm method is to you know, get as close to unlocking the creativity of the 8 billion minds on the planet. But let's get beyond the design milieu and, and talk a little bit about design swarms uh, for the world. Yeah, so um, my um, belief is that uh, every human is creative. Now, of course, we've heard a lot of TED Talks say this, right? that everybody's creative. The challenge has really been, how do we instrument that creativity? And for me, the thesis, the hypothesis really is that today, there are thousands of wicked problems on the planet. 
right? We live in these extraordinary times. It just turns out that at this particular moment in history that we are living, where we're staring down the barrel of this big change called climate change, and there's a ton of different things happening, we just happen to have a ton of different wicked problems around the world. Right? And I, my contention is that design is pretty handy at this point, just because design is a process discipline and not a domain discipline. It's pretty good at being able to take on any kind of problem because it's got this strong backbone of process. And because at this particular moment, we've got almost all the problems are novel problems. So we can't use old methods. We need uh, a discipline that's able to take on really new problems and use this process muscle to take them on. So we've got that. But the challenge, of course, is with the scale of problems that we have, there's just not enough designers to go around. And so the good news, I think, is if we can shift our way of thinking that there are thousands of wicked problems on the planet, but the good news is we've got 8 billion creative minds. And we have a very strong process, which is very elastic and very malleable called the design thinking process, which also is learnable, right? And that if we're able to deploy that, we really have a shot at taking on all these problems at this moment. Okay, so, you know, first of all, one of my initial reactions is, you know, I've, I've often heard people uh, in the design world bemoan the commoditization of design, but really, that might be a good thing. And in effect, I think what you're talking about is not making 8 billion people designers, but certainly equipping as many of them as you can with, with new tools, which takes some pressure in some respects off of the, the people who are, quote, designers and allows exactly. us to maybe work in concert with those minds. It's, I, I, I get the sense that this is a, it's richer than simply defining a single new role of the democratized designer, the member of the swarm, mm -hmm. but actually thinking about how the swarm works with people who are more experienced. I think that's, that's a very key part of the conversation because we, we can't, you know, one of the problems that we've had recently is folks go for two week boot camps on design thinking and think they're designers, right? There's been promise out there that go take the short boot camp or go for two months somewhere and become a designer. No, you don't become a designer, you become a design thinker. And there's a difference, I think, and I don't think one can say we're going to create 8 billion designers. Design is a highly specialized discipline. It's got a specific think of a set of thinking skills, visual skills, making skills, and it takes time and years and years to master that. But design thinking itself is a mindset and a process which can be externalized and which people can be led through. And so I kind of think of that somebody who is moving through a design thinking process still needs to be facilitated through the process, but they can temporarily have designerly behaviors mm -hmm. to solve the problem at hand. Will they be able to do it by themselves? Probably not, right? But 
uh, I think that therein lies the difference, I think. But what we have uh, access to is this huge untapped creative pool that one can tap into if we use that approach of being very clear between designers and design thinkers. So let's talk about an example where you have unleashed those design thinkers on a, a wicked problem. Absolutely. I'll talk of, I'll talk of something I just uh, uh, did uh, in the past couple of days. Uh, so uh, this is a project that I was doing remotely with Sierra Leone. And one of the huge challenges in Sierra Leone is just uh, gender violence. There, um, you know, the UN has a, a list uh, of gender disparity. And it has a, of the 189 countries on the list, Sierra Leone is number 186th. So there's just horrific violence and disparity. And that has been uh, extremely resistant to being solved. And in fact, the, um, the president of Sierra Leone declared uh, gender violence a national emergency, and particularly for teenage girls. So um, over the past couple of days, I've been working remotely with a school in Sierra Leone in Freetown, where we have been using these, the core of the design science process are process maps, which make the entire process visible. The other important part of it is that there are multiple teams that concurrently work on the same problem on these process maps in parallel with visibility to each other's process. Because of that, they're able to raise each other, learn from each other. And what happens is you can start to discover the problem space very quickly. So that's exactly what happened. As we moved through this problem, we started to find unexpected aspects of the problem. You know, one of them was, for uh, example, the uh, issues around the women who face the biggest problem, which is women who are albino. Right. And we start to discover where their issues, such as old tribal belief systems, are influencing this. And so uh, that discovery process with these set of 30, 15 and 16 year old uh, boys and girls moving through this process, we were able to do this extraordinary level of discovery. And by the end of two days, we had 16 proposals hmm. from them. You know, and those 16 proposals, uh, uh, they are a starting point where they can be submitted now into a, an authority figure, in this case, the first lady of uh, Sierra Leone, that it will be submitted to. And they will have a chance to start looking at uh, uh, solutions that actually come from the point of view of the people who bear the impact. So that's a, a very recent example, which ended about 24 hours ago. Wow. But uh, you must be on quite a high. But then again, it sounds like this is, you know, not, not the first time you've been in this, at this point of uh, looking back on a, 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 you know, a, a, a single effort to, uh, to create design thinkers out there and, and had such a great experience. Yeah. You know, for me, true, it's been... Uh, really humbling and astonishing 
to just witness the creative power that is out there, right? We, you know, yes, you know, intellectually we say, yes, everybody's creative, everybody's able to do that. But to actually see the amount of creativity that uh, emerges in these short engagements from folks who have never even known that there's something in the world called design and to see them exhibit these behaviors and actually traverse the whole journey of understanding problem space and then move to the journey of traversing solution space and go through that and also uh, start to respond to that is uh, been unusual. There's, you know, there the, some of the folks who have engaged in um, these uh, uh, this method and these in a workshop format are folk, for example, folks who have uh, uh, been very close to the opioid, uh, mm -hmm. right? Folks who've been on the healthcare provider end, and folks who've had firsthand experience of the opioid ep epidemic in Ohio, right? And the sum of the kind of solutions they came up with completely, you know, impressive, mind-blowingly good. Yeah. So yeah, this is, uh, uh, for me, it's been uh, very interesting to take, you know, a quarter century of my own design uh, experience and to externalize it into these maps and also take the uh, design methods of others even better than me and turn that to maps and then see what happens when people follow these maps. So let me ask you, when, when uh, one of these exercises begins, is it presented um, uh, as a, an opportunity to, to learn design thinking, uh, to be part of a swarm, or does it start off focused on the problem at hand, whether it's uh, uh, addressing the opioid crisis or uh, the, the state of, of, of gender discrimination in Sierra Leone. Um, and then do you come around to saying, oh, by the way, you've just learned a bunch of skills. We call them design thinking skills and you can apply them elsewhere. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because what the SWARMS method has been really handy is also as a teaching tools teaching tool for uh, places they've adopted. Boston colleges adopted very broadly across entire Boston college as a method to teach all their students about design thinking. So there it comes in from let's learn about design thinking, but because in the context of problems, we try to find local problems and they also go through a problem solving process. There are other times where they're extremely low resource communities who need a solution quickly. And so then they'll go through it. But then this uh, one of the benefits is at the end of it, they find that they've got a tool that they're able to use. You know, for instance, there was a uh, one of these uh, uh, swarms that did and in Mexico City right after the earthquake, because there was a, um, that was about five years ago, mm -hmm. big earthquake in the city, where there was a lot of challenges right after the earthquake. And so citizens wanted, uh, needed to come together, but they didn't have a scaffold. And so working with one of the universities there, we went ahead and had citizens come together, work with design students who are also citizens, of course, and they came up with some uh, solutions. And then the uh, in, uh, intention was to come up with solutions. But now it turns out that they've got a method that they can use as well. So it's a little bit of both. Well, uh... 
it, it's a it's fascinating uh and also just you know kind of makes my heart sing to see how it's actually being applied in in these these broad real world situations but after the break i'd like to take it to the enterprise and think about how people in the enterprise uh, who who often feel like they're their challenges are as intractable as anything the world faces and think about how swarm the swarm methods helping them so we'll take it into a break you're listening to the rosenfeld review i hope you're enjoying the podcast if you want more not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive but we have something that's very current very alive and very engaging for groups and that is our communities Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. My guest, Suyavanka. Uh, we're talking about swarms, design swarms. And Soria is talking uh, about applying uh, this method of swarms and creating design thinkers at scale to take on these really massive, wicked problems in society and, and uh, touched on a couple but now let's take it to the enterprise. And uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are people who are struggling uh, with huge problems, you know, not societal problems. But on the other hand, maybe some of them are. You know, if you're working at the, uh, the Veterans Administration or maybe even in a, a private uh, entity like an Amazon, you are addressing broad societal challenges. Uh, so l let's talk a little bit about how swarms are working in that context. Sure. So, um, you know, although uh, the work around uh, building this method came from uh, uh, the needs of low resource situations, I've also spent a long time, right, over 20 years in corporate and uh, consulting design. And there's a pattern that I've seen. And the pattern that I've seen that ties into how I believe swarms 
not only will be, are being used today by you know, many large organizations, like you mentioned, Amazon and Microsoft, T-Mobile, REI. Uh, so a number of places have uh, utilized uh, swarms, Lily, Amgen, you know. Uh, and why is that? I think the pattern that I'm referring to is that more and more we are seeing that the teams that are successful in solving complex problems elegantly are no longer the ones that function like top-down command and control organizations. But because problems shape shift so quickly and have so much complexity that the teams that are successful have behaviors that are more nimble, like ant farms or shoals of fish that can move around obstacles. Mm -hmm. So we already know that's a phenomena out there that we know that there are some teams that are able to do this and some teams are not able to do this, right? Where Design Swarms comes in, it's instrumenting this way to do it by bringing together swarm creativity and design thinking. So the design thinking part of it is, of course, a solid process, a repeatable process. The swarm creativity is the structures and the mindsets, the mindsets of being able to not be overly tied to roles, the mindset of learning from each other, the mindset of being very agile and collaborative, the mindset of being boundaryless, the mindset of looking for invisible leaders who might lead a certain part of the process, right? The mindset of really um, allowing folks who have got something to contribute but previously weren't able to contribute because of hierarchies, the hidden contributors, to be able to now actually add value. And so what I believe the same thing that exists in low resource communities, um, which is this huge pool of untapped creative potential, also exists in enterprise. And in enterprise, the number of people who got creativity but don't really get to contribute that creativity towards the offering that the enterprise puts out in the world, the value that the enterprise puts out in the world, the, the, uh, the swarms allow us to tap into that because we can bring together in organizations, I find it's, uh, it's powerful to bring together the designers and the engineers and the PMs and the marketing folks, the admins, the folks who are connecting with customers and customers as well and have them all work together. And because there is one explicit externally depicted process, which we don't negotiate, mm. and that is well orchestrated, it al allows everybody's creativity to collect. So uh, I understand the aspects of process, but isn't there also a need for whoever convenes the swarm to maybe be both generous with their power in the swarm? In other words, to, to, um, to be willing to give leadership away, to, to hand the reins to whoever naturally takes them uh, and to be comfortable with that. Uh, that. That seems to be, like there seems to be some need to clarify the ground rules um, that the convener needs to clarify those ground rules and to demonstrate 
uh, mindfully that they are not there to control. That's, I think that's, that is so central. I, in fact, going back to a previous part of our conversation where we talked about designers, you know, is this a commodification of designers, right? I think what we are really seeing is this new orchestrator designer, the multidiscipline leader who can lead a lot of people, but also requires a giving up, which is, it's not as a designer, it's not about my creativity. It's about other people's creativity. My creativity now is not towards the product, but it's about creatively setting up the frameworks, orchestrating, operationalizing, and all of those other things that are closer to driving organizational change, inspiring, very leader-like qualities. So part of that, that giving up that you mentioned is so critical because there you can, um, as somebody leading this, you can't be attached to your ideas because you're depending on the ideas to come from the swarm. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm loving this and I'm remembering uh, an occasion where I encountered a swarm uh, or I convened one. Uh, and it was a fascinating experience. Uh, we were working on, uh, I was working with Kevin Cheng, who wrote a book uh, uh, that was, uh, for us, that was uh, called See What I Mean. It's about storyboarding, uh, using comics to do storyboarding. It's a great book. I think it's way, way ahead of its time. And we were talking about his book proposal for quite some time. We happened to see each other um, at one of the IA conferences back in Miami. I forget what year it was, probably about 15 years ago already. And I tweeted out something along the lines of, hey, Kevin and I want to get a few people together to talk about his, uh, his book idea. If you're around, we'll be meeting such and such a time in such and such a lounge. And we thought maybe three, four people might spend 20 minutes with us. And we had about 25 people show up. We didn't really know what to do with them. But the beauty of it was, I mean, these are designers, obviously. They just naturally organized. So they already had some of the process down. And I remember, for example, Dan Willis, who's just a fantastic visual facilitator, just started visually facilitating. And other people were taking notes and other people were doing other things. And, and Kevin and I just kind of sat there. And I think we were too kind of awestruck to interfere and thank goodness because it was a fantastic experience that led directly to framing out the book proposal and eventually that led to his book and um you know we i won't take credit for that i think we were just too well i say awestruck we were also somewhat dumbstruck but um it was a fascinating thing to observe and i, I get the sense that you're trying to get people to that point i think you, in your example, there are about three different things that stand out about why that was a successful swarm and not just chaos, right? One that is vital is to create a safe space with lots of trust. And it seemed for whatever reason that there was a sense of psychological safety in that space where people came together and they, uh, uh, people felt they could voice things. That the second thing that I heard was the huge power of shared visual surfaces. 
because we now take intelligence and embody it in the environment. And that is critical, you know, and it so turns out that in our particular time right now, with the rise of digital whiteboards, that has become extraordinarily easy that we can actually have these shared visual surfaces. And when these shared visual surfaces are used not just to depict ideas, but are able to depict a flow of learning and understanding of a problem, and then the flow and understanding of the solution space, something powerful starts to happen. So when you talked about this gentleman stood up and started facilitating in some way, and maybe even drawing something out, that was what is happening. And the third one really is fun that people really uh, are enjoying. And the reason for that is because it creates that relaxed mind that creates a space. You know, I often in these forums, I'll tell people at the beginning, we are going to do very, very, very serious work that has very serious con uh, consequences, but we'll do it in a playful way. But just because we do it playfully, don't mistake it for play. Mm -hmm. But the play, the playful aspects of it, allow our minds to function in certain way. So those three things become really important. Again, connecting to what you were talking for, the convener, the facilitator, it's a highly skilled job, like uh, the conductor of an orchestra, being very alert to you know the slightest nuance to be able to keep safety, to keep that energy, and to keep a common shared understanding uh, so that you can well orchestrate the process together. I love that. I love how you broke it into those three areas. And the second one, you know, the, 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 there's no um, mystery why uh, uh, certain venture capitalists are throwing money at Miro and Mural right now. I mean, you know, they, they should describe that digital whiteboard category as they should rebrand it as the shared embodied cognition <laughs> category uh, <laughs> the um well I, you know i, I do um want to ask you really briefly uh when it comes to senior leaders uh, who are interested in unleashing design swarms what's the one thing they need to keep in mind in, as far as their role because that's a tough thing for traditional leaders to do it's, it's a tough thing, and I think there is the leaders who will be able, to, some leaders will be able to do it, others won't be able to do it. And the leaders who will be able to do it would have truly understood the growth mindset, from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And the particular learning edge is that leadership now requires facilitation skills. You cannot be a leader without being a facilitator. So, you know, that, so that's so key. And being a facilitator means doing all those things you talked about. How do I give up my ideas? How do I give up the fact that I've worked in a space for 20 years and I know the right way, but I'm still able to step back and let something emerge. So emergence is an important thing. Mm -hmm. So for leaders, you know, I think it is learning to be facilitators and understanding, uh, you know, that it's you lead a conversation and that conversation may be a design conversation, maybe a problem solving conversation, whatever that conversation is, you lead it, you begin somewhere and then you have the skills to shape 
and mold and move it forward so that there's value created the end of it. And that value hasn't come from you at the beginning. The value that you thought it was at the beginning of it, the value came from having convened the swarm. I love it. You have to get that out of the swarm. Surya, I can't wait for your talk. Uh, and just a, a reminder, everyone, Surya is giving his talk at Design at Scale. It's our virtual conference uh, coming up June 9th through 11th. And uh, I'm, I'm just inspired. And I wish we had more time. But I do want to wrap up with a quick question for you. We always like to wrap with uh, uh, giving you, uh, our guest, an opportunity to shine a little light on something, someone that could use a, a little light, a light shown on it uh, for our community and uh, our audience. Uh, what, what do you have for us, Surya? Yeah, the, uh, the gift I'd like to share uh, is not a book. It's a book, but it's not a book that got published last week or this month or just came onto Audible. This is a book that's 50 years old today. So this is uh, Design for the Real World by Viktor Papanek. And I think this is a very provocative book. And even though it's 50 years old, it's such a timely read. I have a connection to this book because when I went into design school back in India, that was the book that changed the course of my thinking. It changed the way I looked at design and I understood that design is a political act. Our design choices are not neutral. You know, he has this whole critique of the automobile and automobile designers and how designers can be a dangerous breed. And for me, it has resonances when today designers have such extraordinary power when we get to shape massive digital products. And there are a host of new ethical issues and our choices are not neutral anymore. And it's a really, it's a page turner. It's wow. a page turner. It's a really uh, good read. And it's... Um, um, manage to uh, remain fresh. Fantastic. Well, Design for the Real World by Victor Papanek, now on the reading list for hopefully a whole swarm of readers. Sorry, Surya, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Surya, thank you so much. Great to talk with you. Just so enjoyed this. Surya Ivanka, we'll see you at Design at Scale. Thanks, Lou. That is awesome. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. <laughs>